This week's guest is Lauren Mote, who joins us from Amsterdam. Lauren is currently the Global Director of On-Trade Excellence for Patron Tequila, a founding partner of the award-winning Bittered Sling Cocktail Bitters Company, Nightcap Media Marketing Agency, and Women Celebrate Social Enterprise. We have a terrific conversation with Lauren where some of the topics we discuss are how her drive and ambition led to her current role with Patron, the missing middle in the hospitality industry, and the importance of being a mentor and giving back to the industry. Lauren is a terrific guest, and make sure you check out the show notes for more information and all the links. Enjoy the show. Okay, we're back with another episode of the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip. This is Dan. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well. Thanks. Good. Yourself? How are things going with you? Doing well. Things are good. Yeah, how's uh, business leading up to Christmas time? It's picking up. Lots of Christmas parties. If you are in the Kitchener Waterloo area, you should check out either of my spots. Trigger Run in downtown Kitchener is the speakeasy. Tickets are on sale for New Year's Eve now on Eventbrite, Brownman Alley. And then Uptown Waterloo, it's Babylon Sisters Wine and Spirits. And we have New Year's tickets. They'll be available very shortly. It'll be a wine pairing dinner early in the evening. And then DJs late at night, myself and Dan, in fact. Yeah. Oh, yes. Return Return to yesteryear. Yes, exactly. So check out both those places at Babylon Sisters Bar, at Sugar Run Bar on Instagram for all of the details. If you like what we're doing on this show, subscribe, rate, and review. That's the best way to help us out. And if you wish to be a guest on the show or... If you wish to support the show, then that's the industry podcast on Instagram or info at the industry club on email. Zach Hanna does the artwork for the Instagram page. That's at zachhanna.co. And you should check out all his great graphic works there. Yep. And as always, uh, for anything we talk about, you can always find the links in the show notes. All right. Well, we have an amazing guest this week. So we're just going to get right to it and stop wasting time. Lauren Mote is joining us from Amsterdam. How are you, Lauren? I'm super great. How are you guys doing? We're doing, doing all right. Well, yeah, I'm coming on the show. Yes, thanks very much. Yeah, especially considering how busy you must be. So let's let's talk about from the beginning. Why don't you tell our our listeners exactly sort of how you would characterize what your role is in general? Because you're doing so many different things. How do you describe yourself when people ask? Can we talk about for a second that you're in Kitchener Waterloo? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Like I went to university in Waterloo. Oh, oh you nice. did? Oh, okay. nice. Yeah. That was in 2000. I know I'm like jumping the gun here. We'll no, get to the good. rest of the bio. But of seriously, course. No, in, in 2003 to 2005, I was at University of Waterloo. Oh, wow. Double we're, major. We're and both University of Waterloo grads ourselves. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's cool. I didn't <laughs> yeah. graduate there. I, w- I was in uh, University of Toronto is where I transferred after that. Anyway, it's part of a storied past. But my <laughs> cousin is still there. She owns formerly the Ambrosia Bakery. Oh, no oh, kidding. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Aura, Aura Herzog is my is my cousin, if oh, you know uh, her. Uh, the, so one anyway. Of the, one of her original locations was about two blocks from my house. I used to go there all the time. And now she's downtown Kitchener. So I don't see that as much as often before. But that place was fantastic. Started as Golden Hearth and then became Ambrosia. And now ah. it is called Orella, which is what our grandmother, our 104 year old grandmother Rose, calls each of us. So she's Orella. I'm Lorela. Um, oh, so there you nice. go. A little tidbit fact about Kitchener Waterloo. Big shout out to Aura. Go by and support her bakery and her bean to bar chocolate. There you go. Uh, oh, all right. That chocolate is spectacular. It that's is. Spectacular. That's what drew me in the first place. I yeah. buy that for a lot of friends and stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
But getting back to this cocktail yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So uh yes, I am I am tuning in today from Amsterdam. It is uh Sunday night, it's about 7 p.m. It's really cold out. It's been dark for six hours already, because as <laughs> is the case in northern Europe. So we have a lot of time to ponder about what one will say in a podcast. But I've I've been in the industry, F and B for 26 years and been in drinks specifically serving alcohol for 22. And I suppose if uh, I, I learned this neat trick from my husband the other day, who's also been in the industry for over 30 years, that if I just break down my bio now into decades and explain <laughs> to people, it's yeah. just so much easier. But what I what I do today, which is, uh, you know, developed from, from my very long past in the industry, doing a, a, a lot of different things, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, I am the global director of on trade for Patron Tequila. Everyone, everyone knows Patron Tequila, of course. Uh, just recently acquired by uh, Bacardi, and I'm also the co-founder of Bitterzling Bitters, which is an award-winning small batch bitters company with only three ingredients: British Columbia spring water, whole botanicals, and only the finest Canadian non-genetically modified spirit. Uh, and that is lovingly handmade in British Columbia. Uh, so we are still, my husband and I are still the owners of that company. And we have lots of other things that we do, and we own a small sausage dog called Moon Dog. So that's what I do <laughs> right at this moment. <laughs> nice. Talk to me a little bit about what what is your like. What do you do on a day to day basis for Patron? Like, what does the global director of trade ex, on trade excellence do for Patron? So in the in the spirits world, for anyone tuning in that has never really worked a day in corporate or you know beyond the bar, as it were, on trade is the is the company's way or the industry's way of describing bars, restaurants, hotels, anywhere where people are working in the trade. And the trade, of course, are referring to bartenders or folks that work uh, in those on-premise locations. And so it, it could mean a wide range of things, but uh, more often than not, it is related to trade advocacy. It is about pumping the investment, the training, and the I guess the importance and the accessibility to bartenders, regardless of what level they perform at, whether they're seasoned veterans that have been in the industry for two decades, or they're brand new coming into the industry and picking up a shaker for the first time thinking, what do I use this for? So my job is to ensure that there are training and accessible resources available to all bartenders in, in a, a wide range of areas of the sector, bars, restaurants, hotels, dive bars, Michelin level, which we can say that now for Canada as there are Michelin stars now or Four Seasons or Top End. But I think the most important thing is that bartenders and the on-trade are at the heart of every conversation that I have. So before anything is developed before we hit go on any global projects before we do anything it's always with the bartender and the operators in mind uh, that we serve at the pleasure of making sure that those folks have what they need to run a successful uh, and sustainable business um, beyond that though it's uh, there's a lot of fun I mean I'm working in the most exciting spirits category as you know tequila has, uh, taken off in recent years, and it is is continuing to skyrocket. And this represents a, a few different things. Number one, it's the bartender's favorite spirit to work with, agave spirits in general, and definitely my 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 favorite that has never been knocked out of first place over the last several years. Uh, the second thing is that we are looking at ways of developing conversations where tequila, not only just as a spirit category and agave spirits generally 
are the liquids we're putting into the glass, but it's connecting us back to the culture and the traditions and the landscape of where these incredible spirits are made and the people by whom are, are making them. And bringing those those cultural sig- culturally significant conversations into our spirits is absolutely necessary, required, and expected. And we do that uh, as, as part of how we bring our trade advocacy and education agenda to life. Hmm. Yeah. So now, I mean, that's, Super interesting. Did you do you find are you doing a lot of traveling all over the world to do this? Is that sort of are you on the road a lot? Like how did you and, and also like how did you land in Amsterdam? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll touch on Amsterdam first yeah. because I okay. think it, it is part of uh part of the story of of uh of of the travel part of this. In my in my previous role, I was working for another very large spirits company and I was managing a trade advocacy agenda with, uh, you know, a small group of uh, individuals in a market of 60 different countries uh, where we were working with uh, hundreds of thousands of bartenders. And a lot of the role that I had was uh, a requirement to develop virtual and accessible digital learning tools, but also visiting these 60 countries to ensure that we were getting we were getting FaceTime with the operators, with the folks that were running these bars and restaurants, and also the bartenders right at the ground level to make sure that we were really representing the the bartending community at that time and the level of education that they required. So that, I mean, that started in 2017, but I've been traveling to this sort of aggressive level. And when I say aggressive, I mean 300 days a year being on the road. 82% of my life was spent away from home. And uh, so that that was just steadily picking up from, you know, the occasional trip here and there with a brand starting in, in 2012. And then just with our bidders company as well, just continued to grow and sort of picked up major speed uh, in 2017. And then the head office for the company I was working for at the time was uh, was based in Amsterdam. And so being from Vancouver, I mean, obviously, I'm born and raised in, in Toronto, but I moved to Vancouver in 2007. So that was where most of my, uh, the formative part of my career uh, took place. It's very far away. You know, living in Canada, <laughs> that getting to Vancouver, even from where you guys are in the KW yeah. area would take a very long time. It would, it would destroy your entire day. I mean, it would take forever and it would cost what you would assume would be an entire day because it's quite expensive to travel in Canada. Mm-hmm. So traveling from Vancouver to all of these far-flung locations around the world became uh, really difficult because I couldn't come home in between. It was just too far away. So I was stopping in little spots along the way, and I was stopping more often than not in Amsterdam because the office was here. But Amsterdam is, is actually quite a lot like Vancouver. It's the same size. It has the same terrible weather. It has like the same <laughs> attention to sort of, you know, the outdoors and and looking at things from a, a, a more holistic lens of uh, of wellness. Of course, they have the, the partying atmosphere that everyone knows about too. But uh, I, I ended up spending quite a lot of time here in between trips and developed a bit of an international group or community in Amsterdam that I was uh, very lucky to continue to come back and visit. And then I brought my husband, Jonathan, along for a couple of those trips. And we both agreed that if the opportunity came up, and it did with Brexit, 
uh, Brexit forced everyone that had a British passport that lived anywhere in the world that if you wanted to get over and experience, you know, being a, a legal resident of anywhere in the European Union, you had a, a, a pretty quick deadline to get that done. So we decided uh, to go for it. And that was in December 2019. I think between agreeing that we were going to go, getting all the paperwork and literally getting on a plane with seven suitcases with a container somewhere over the ocean to to meet us three months later. And I think all told it was four months mm. um, start to finish, which was crazy to uproot our lives. And Jonathan was able to, to run Bittered Sling from Amsterdam. He still does today. And I'm, you know, thriving, doing my work. And now since joining uh, Patron, the office, oddly enough, in Europe is is based in Amsterdam. So oh, I don't know how that well, works, but that works perfect, out great. <laughs> yeah, perfect timing. So uh, that's how we got here. And and the, the travel has, well, I mean, since I think uh, it's like letting the, the animals out of, out of the cages, you know, with COVID. So the the moment we arrived in Amsterdam in December 2019, we didn't realize, just like everyone else, that you know we'd have two months, two months to live, you know, two yeah. months to experience <laughs> uh, whatever uh, whatever we could before you know the unthinkable would happen in March. And so, being in in you know lockdown for two years here in Amsterdam, or 18 months to 24 months, was not was not bad. I mean, it was terrible for us as business owners. I mean, we almost lost everything as I'm, I'm sure is a, a tale that everyone knows all too well. But, you know, we managed to, to pull through and, you know, we'll still be feeling the effects of the pandemic on our business for, for years to come. And it was, uh, I think the moment we were allowed to travel again, everyone just, I don't know if you experienced this yourselves, but even on a personal level, didn't matter where, didn't matter how much you would just figure out how to get on a plane and go somewhere and just have mm -hmm. that extra incredibly engaged experience because you had no idea what was waiting around the corner. Yeah. yeah. A, a quick question about Amsterdam. What was it like without all the tourists? Well, actually the coolest part about Amsterdam is when there is no tourists because yeah. like the center part of Amsterdam, what everyone knows is a stereotypical Amsterdam. Like when I say Amsterdam to you, what do you think of? The, like party town. I was just, town, I, red light I was, district, I was yeah. just there in yeah. July yeah. for work and yeah. fun. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, so many tourists. So I was yeah. just like, wow. So that small pocket, like those really beautiful buildings, you know, the canal houses, uh, the the canals that go right through the city, the semicircle, it's just, it's really, really beautiful. And that represents like a small part yeah. of Amsterdam life. But when you move out past uh, the Rijksmuseum or past the Museumplein, it gets into, oh, this is where people actually live. And it's right. not that far. I mean, if you ask it. I can say this now because I feel like I'm an honorary duchy because I we ride our bikes everywhere. We don't have a car. But if you were to, you know, to ask, well, how far away is your place or where do I need to meet you? And this, oh, well, it's a, a 10 minute bike ride. OK, good. That's anything more than that is just outrageous. You know, so for <laughs> us, we, we measure distances based on how long it takes us to get there on our bikes. Right. But, you know, it's so without the tourists, we had free reign sort of to really explore. but. I mean, with that comes the 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 negative side that a lot of the businesses in Amsterdam didn't have a lot of government support. So they they really got locked up. And we have a lot of friends that own bars and restaurants here that um, I don't know how they managed to survive through because we had five lockdowns, yeah. open and close, open and close. And so it, and it was challenging. But I think when I compare it to other parts of the world, with the exception of Vancouver, because Vancouver was open the entire time. Yeah, it was like it never happened but, there. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I compare a lot of what happened in Amsterdam to say Toronto. Toronto mm-hmm. was was brutally hit with um with restrictions and it was really tough. And I have we have quite a few friends that lost businesses there. So yeah, we that's we as well here in Kitchener Waterloo. And I don't know how my mind made it through, but the sheer luck mostly, I think. But yeah, it was just the like it wasn't just the lockdowns, it was the restrictions as well. You mentioned like we had one for months where it was like you could only have 10 people maximum including and staff. Including staff. <laughs> and you had to be closed by nine o'clock. Like it made no sense, right? Some of these, well, so it was like, I like, I'm surprised more places didn't close down, honestly. But we don't need to talk anymore about COVID. Fuck that shit. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> to you. Oh, Your business thank has you. stayed open. Yeah. yeah but anyway, so Amsterdam without tourists was uh, was pretty cool. I mean, the silver lining of it is that we could be outside. We could, you know, we could roam around. We had free reign. Coffee shops were, you know, you could still get takeaway coffees from the little windows. Oh, and nice. uh, sorry, I have to say cafes, not coffee shops. Coffee shops right. mean something different. Yes, yes they do. <laughs> okay, so like when you're traveling, when you when now that you're back to traveling around, obviously that's probably great for like you're traveling for Patron for your job with Patron, but you're also it's a great way to sort of promote your bitters business as well, right? Because you're like you're traveling around talking to the people who are going to use the products. Yeah, I think I uh, in recent years I've I've had to separate sort of the interest between, you know, what I work on full time and what Jonathan works on full time. I think in the beginning, you know, having a a mom and pop company, so to speak, being two entrepreneurs that, you know, sp- spent and still do spend every cent that we make uh in reinvesting back into our company. Uh you know, Bitterson's been around for 10 years. Uh, it'll be 11 years in February. So we've been doing this a long time and it was two years of R and D before that. So we're going into year, you know, 13, 14 now with bitter sling. And so I, I think in the beginning, the, I think this is what a lot of brand owners start to understand as well. When you, when you say to someone, Oh my God, global brand, people get really excited. They're like global, every country, you know, 140 to 200 countries or however many countries there are. And I think for small business owners, it's about conquering the few exceptionally well. So while bitters were always in my bag because they are a ubiquitous part of making a cocktail, and in the event I was traveling to countries where they didn't have access to bitters, for example, where I I did quite a lot of travel outside of you know the eight to ten countries we actually have bittered sling distribution. I would always bring extras because I would use them in guest shifts or use them in, in different things, but then I would leave behind all the bitters and they would become these like special tokens, mementos, because they wouldn't be able to get them. And because they're alcohol based, they absolutely would not be able to get them. So, you know, bitter sling became almost like the accompaniment or the accoutrement to what I was doing. And so I've always worked for base spirits that have never had conflicts with modifiers, which was really important. I would never, I would never take a job uh, with a brand that owned a bitters company or owned a, a non-potable bitters company. It's just not something I would ever do. So the bitters have always been a nice accompaniment to, mm-hmm. to making drinks or uh, elaborating on how we develop flavors, the scientific understanding of, of taste and flavor, nosing spirits. You know, it's it's all sort of related to the same thing. It also helped to give, uh, you know. A, a Canadian product, a voice on a on a global stage. Again, I'm doing hand quotations. I know this is not yeah, audio. Recorded, it's all right. Yeah. I know it's. Not, <laughs> I'm doing, doing hand quotations. Yeah. Hand quotations because you know, global to everyone. Again, might mean the entire planet, but for us, it means 
you know, like 10, 12 countries, maybe, uh, of where we can, we can really do some great work. And now today, Jonathan, he runs the entire company and we have a whole slew of bitter babes and, you know, ambassadors that work, that work on bittered sling as part of their, you know, their day jobs, working on bars and different things. We just supplement, uh, their income with doing a little bit of love with us. And, uh, so I think, because of the way we've done it, and I think from a financial standpoint, we couldn't afford to do it <laughs> any other way because we're self-financed. It became the coolest way to build Bittered Sling organically was really just through, you know, hand-to-hand combat with bartenders. It's just yeah. like, have a bottle, have a bottle, taste it, taste it, do this, do this. Uh, and people were free to just compare them against other brands that they were working with or use them alongside. And, you know, we've been doing that for again, for 12 years since yeah. we had been seeding, seeding the brand. And so for us today, it feels like such an amazing community that we've been able to build and it becomes synonymous with Jonathan and I. So even though when I travel and I'm teaching classes on, you know, the, the craft and process of making an additive free tequila, for example, with Patron, always when I'm making drinks, it's like, and then I'm going to put in this all natural bitters as well, right. <laughs> which also has no additives, you know, it just, uh, and then leave them behind for the bartenders and everyone knows that I, that I own bittered sling. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's pretty cool how, how we got to that point. And it's, it's just been a, a really wild ride. I mean, we, we get tagged on Instagram all the time from, from bartenders and far flung places around the world. And we're trying to figure out how they got the bottle. Oh, really? And we're yeah. trying to look yeah. at the label to see what versions they were. Because we used to right. put vin- vintages on our original bottles from like 12 years ago. And so we're always trying to 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 figure out or try and recall, you know, where these where these individual bottles came from. And sometimes we're we're stumped. We have to ask them, where did you get that bottle? They're like, that's, oh, you gave it to me at the side of the street, you know, one day somewhere random. Yeah. That's gotta be super satisfying though when you see that stuff, especially and, and congratulations for keeping this going for over a decade now. The other thing I wanted to ask you about regarding the travel is you received this year like what I think is a super one cool award, which is the mentor award at Tales of the Cocktail. And so this also links back to your traveling around and teaching and instructing bartenders all over the world, I'm sure. So talk to us a little bit about that award and how you feel about the prestige of it. So mentorship has always been the cornerstone of my training program. So even, you know, in the last 22 years working in a wide range of uh, different roles in the industry of having, uh, you know, sitting down and hiring staff or training and developing staff for somebody else or doing consulting roles, managing businesses. The, the most important thing was about finding really incredibly passionate people and being able to provide the right environment with the right communication and the right tools so that they could blossom into whatever the version of their best self could be in that environment. And that has definitely taken some mentorship and leadership from other great people that have that have helped along the way, especially, you know, as you're as you're coming up in the industry. But it's the most important thing that we can do is pass on anything we've got, any learnings whatsoever, even though we are all still learning and will continue to learn forever, being able to pass that down to not even next generation, but even current generation that may not have had access to any of the information or the opportunity. So, you know, I look at the list of who was shortlisted for the Spirited Awards, and it's a list of incredible people that, you know, have 
we all are, are, you know, part of this peer-to-peer mentorship system in this community. So it, 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 we've always tried to sort of remove the hierarchy in terms of you are my elder, therefore you know more, therefore I must listen to you. I think if an someone that happens to be older than you or been in the industry longer than you may have some poignant advice and maybe choice, interesting anecdotes to share, but they aren't necessarily right because they're older than you or longer in the industry. So I think you know, going back to that list, everyone on that list has probably had some relationship with a hierarchical mentor. I have uh, several, and a lot of them have been very positive. But I think as the world is changing, as our industry is changing, as even the age groups are changing, the audiences are so different. What inspires them, what makes them tick, what they're interested in, where they want to go in life is so different. And so the way that they receive mentorship and the way that they receive education and resource also has to change. So I, I'm i just very happy that I have been working, I suppose, with a wide range of audiences for so long, listening rather than telling. So I could sort of create a, a method of coaching and training that would be best suited for each of the individuals along the way that showed like that really passionate side and that really incredible side for our industry. And so I've been I've been nominated in this category for you know I I feel crazy to even say several years and I always thought you know it's great to be recognized it's great to be on the top 10 it's great that someone even nominated me even if I don't make it to the top 10 if I make it to the top 4 oh my god like that is that is crazy but to win it it it's such a massive honor because it is a it's an award that has been chosen by my peers. And so rather than a hierarchical system saying you deserve to win because it's your turn, right? that's not the case. Like it's, it's literally uh, uh, hundreds of people voting on that have decided that what they see that I'm doing, this is not a lifetime achievement award. What they see that I'm doing right here and right now is benefiting the people in the industry that matter the most and benefiting uh, even them. And that is a huge honor. And it's up to us as award winners in every category, whether in this industry or another, to take how you feel about winning that award and pay it forward immediately and continue to give back. It's not enough to just receive the award, rest on your laurels and say, that's it. You do a George Costanza. <laughs> yeah, I, I did it. And it's done now. It's a huge commitment and a huge responsibility to be able to live up to the expectation of that award because you wouldn't want, I wouldn't want people to turn around and say, wow, you didn't actually deserve it in the end. Right. I'm going to jump back a little bit to what you were talking about there when you're discussing mentorship and like how it's changing in the industry, because this is something I've noticed even just like post pandemic, the kind of people who are entering the industry. Have you noticed a shift in younger people coming into the industry and how they're looking at their careers in the industry. Uh, for me, and the reason I'm asking is why I've found there's been less of people who are looking at it as a career and more of people who are just looking at it as a side gig until they get to do the job they really want to do. Yeah, it's, uh, it is the number one thing that I am spewing right now and telling everybody mm-hmm. it's we have lost the entire middle section of our yeah. industry. The middle section of our industry were the mentors and the trainers for the young ones. And I don't mean young in age, it could be young in experience mm-hmm. or just, you know, coming in from adjacent industries. We have also lost the section of the industry that is the liaison between the veteran pro bartenders that have been doing this for a long time and the recruitment of those coming into the industry. So that whole section 
It does tend to like turn over slightly every 10 years. And usually brands and trade advocacy have sort of occupied that space, you know, in the past where it is going through a changeover where there's like every brand is training on category, every brand is training on, you know, different topics, but we can't, you know, we can't do any specialized training at the moment because we've lost this entire audience of bartenders. So what, what we're, what we're doing right now is we need to repair the part of the industry that we've lost. And it is because of the pandemic and it's because of uh, lack of benefits, lack of incentive, lack of cost of living. People just can't afford to, to, to live in this industry. And so we've got bartenders at the very top of the industry that have somehow managed to survive through the pandemic that have their own things that they need to take care of. They need to put themselves first, their families first, their businesses first. And then you have the young ones coming in and they don't have the middle section of the industry telling them this can be a career. Mm-hmm. This can be your everything. These are the different branches and directions that you can take. This is the career journey and path that you could take. This is how you can take the other hobbies you have and apply them successfully to working in this industry and then go forward into one, two, three, four, five different types of future. So we don't have that. And so the what we're going through right now with say Patron Perfectionist, which traditionally was a cocktail contest that you know was very singularly focused on one drink and awarding bartenders based on that one drink, has transformed this year into a bartending program that is still has a contest aspect to it, but empowering more bartenders to come in through education, but then to meet each other, and this is part of their their class of. 2022, 23, if you will. And their job now going through the process is, yes, you get to make amazing drinks with Patron Tequila as the base. You get to come up with wild and crazy ideas on how you envision, you know, drinks, rituals, service, flavors, whatever, your wildest imagination. But what we expect from you coming out of this is you're the leaders of the industry. You are the leaders of this layer of the industry. And it's up to you now to feel empowered with us as your sort of like supporters and, and, you know, benefactors, if you will, to go back and train your group of industry folks that are coming in, the people at your bar that are your, you know, your equals alongside you, you know, the operators that don't have time. And then the, you know, the younger bartenders that are coming in thinking that this is just what they're going to do while they're waiting for, you know, school to finish and they're going to go off and do some sort of professional degree so whatever it is, that's we've now moved down a, a generation and we're saying, we know you're probably not ready for this yet, but we need you and right. we'll give you everything we've got in order to support you on this journey and let's do it together. Yeah, well, I think that's super important and uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, unfortunately, we have now had to skip the middle part, but the point is we got to keep it moving, right? So otherwise the industry is going to collapse. But the other thing that I think is interesting now too is like what we can get across to people is that I've been doing this for 30 plus years and there's never been a time in the service industry where there have been more ways to practice the craft of of being a bartender or even a server for that matter. Like you can be... You can do a whole business just on Instagram. You can be a traveling consultant. You like there's like when I came up in the industry, you were basically working at a brick and mortar spot, and that was the gig. Yeah. Well, listen, if I can be an example, I mean there there are many different examples, but I can share my own experience. And it's much the way, you know, how I how I provide mentorship and coaching as well, is that, you know, I can share my story and then folks that are listening, they might say, Oh. 
well, that sounds a little bit similar to something I've gone through or I am going through or represents sort of my way of thinking or my train of thought down this particular path. I didn't graduate university. You know, I just uh, I just published a book uh, a month and a half ago called The Bartender's Guide to the World. And the first uh, probably 20 pages of the book is talking about all the things that I did and all the things that I didn't do and how it didn't matter. Right. <laughs> so I went, I went to university of Waterloo, had an amazing first year, loved it. Had my life had, a, had stayed in Waterloo. I would have gone on and had a very different life. I would have been a campus Don. I would have played, you know, varsity soccer. I would have gone to law school. That was my path having staying in Waterloo. I didn't. I transferred to U of T and decided to be closer to my family, closer to my friends, continue to work full time, which I was not doing in Waterloo for that year. And it completely destroyed my academic life. And I, at one point, had to make a choice. I, I remember very distinctly being at Le Select Bistro in Toronto, where I worked with two of the greatest owners on this planet. It was still to this day, probably the greatest hospitality job or like bar job I've ever had. And I was looking at them thinking, my God, I'm really good at this, but I'm also really good at business. I'm great in business. I'm great in academics. I'm great in all these things. There's got to be a way I can blend them together because the thought of going back and doing like an astronomy elective makes me really unhappy. <laughs> I love space, but I want to be outside with a telescope. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So uh, decided to leave and decided the only way that I could do it was actually to leave Toronto. And so I left and went to Vancouver and I started only focusing just on how I could apply everything that I was gifted at from like the academic side and being able to apply that to what I loved creatively about the industry. And I just tirelessly focused on that. And the reason why I chose Vancouver um, was at the time the Olympics were coming. So we had three years before the Olympics were coming. And so every like global media, every single person be trying to come to Vancouver, it would put everything on Vancouver on the map. And I wanted to be there for that. Cause if there was ever a time to do it, it was going to be then. And I just continued to work my way through. I took uh, different courses on, like I became a sommelier, then I did spirits courses, then I did marketing courses. I did everything and just kept going through and moving up the ranks, became a bar manager, then a beverage director, then a sommelier, then a buyer, you know, then a, then a general manager, then a director of operations, then multi-unit, then, you know, consultant with the other things I was doing, then business owner, then two businesses, then consulting, then. So I just kept doing more and more. And eventually uh, I realized, wow, this is my transitional point now. This is where I can make the decision to move out from behind the bar completely and remove that as an identity, but still identify as someone in the drinks business and move into a different realm. And that's when I made the switch and I moved into uh, working in brand management and trade advocacy with uh, formerly with, with Diageo and World Class, where I work globally. And then uh, from there, I learned again, as much as I could and still put my, my bartender stamp on everything, learned commercial, learned marketing, learned executive business development, just learned all of these different things and then continued to stick myself in the room and listen. And now, I mean, it's I, I don't work behind the bar anymore. I still make drinks occasionally, but I am now serving, I think, the bartenders in our industry in a very different way, providing maybe more obvious options for bartenders that I wish I had when I was younger, but I also 
don't have any regrets because I think exactly my path was exactly what I needed to do. And that just, you know, goes to show that we we are not defined by what we are doing right at this moment. We're defined by exactly how we spend the next several years. And I think, you know, for, for bartenders, I can think of a few bartenders that have been able to push against the grain like that and go into, you know, director or high level positions and some of the biggest spirit companies in the world that really operate their fortune 500 companies. And I'm really proud. I'm really proud that I was able to do that. And every day is still a learning journey, but I know that by going through this and sharing my story as often as I do, and then with the book as well, and with Bittered Slaying, with Jonathan, podcasts like this one we're doing together today, this helps for another young bartender or another business owner or another you know, person working in hospitality to see that it really is possible to do something, you know, big and extraordinary, regardless of where they're at at the moment. Well, I think that's a, a great spot to end it, Lauren. And they, I think you're a fantastic example to anyone who is trying to get in this industry and maybe looking at things just like beyond being behind a bar or serving at a table, even though there's that's a great career as well, obviously. But it's it is good for people listening to know that there's like if you if you like you said, put yourself in the room and learn, then there's a path forward to almost anything you want to do in this business now. And you're not just, you're not so constrained as it was like when you and I started out in this. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, like a couple of other notes I, I, I'd love to share as well. Yeah. You know, we've, uh, we've, we've, in the last 20 years in our industry, we've been faced with a lot of uh, different issues as well that not everyone would be would be a victim of or or to be seen as having a disadvantage in a way. You know, being a female definitely had disadvantages in terms of, you know, working in corporate environments or in terms of, you know, running businesses for other people before the time where where I suppose the the paradigm would shift in such a way that yes, yes, we can shift against the grain. And even though it has been men at the helm of these programs this entire time, we can't have women in here. And this makes total sense. So it took a long time for that to happen. And there's quite a few people in the industry, uh, quite a few that you've you've actually interviewed on your podcast as well, and more to come that have helped to sort of pave the way for for more women to come in. But there's there's also, you know, highlighting the underserved communities of, you know, the uh, black, indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ community. So I think we have so much work to do. But I think the ones that uh, like myself that are in this very privileged position and also in a position where I worked very hard to get here. But I understand that there are elements of who I am that gave me the privilege to have the opportunity that we need to continue to fight for everybody that still does not feel as though they have the opportunity and the chance to really shine. So I, I always think about that as well. And just making sure in, in the words of my friend, Jackie Summers, who is the owner of Sorel Hibiscus Liqueur in New York, Jack from Brooklyn, he's an incredible activist and journalist. It's not enough to just invite somebody to a party, but you still have to get them to ask you to dance. So it's important that you've got you know, you need the opportunity to be in the room, but if someone's not inviting you to sit at the table, inviting you to dance, whatever it is, then there's still a lot of work to do. So I think uh, for anyone listening in as well, there there is definitely the opportunity to make a really, really big difference. Um, and there's always ways to smash the glass ceiling. So 
let's keep in touch on that. Okay. Thanks, Lauren. We appreciate it. And then thanks for giving us your time. I know it's getting late for you. I mean, it's been dark for six hours or whatever anyway, but... <laughs> six six weeks. It's been six dark weeks. for six weeks. No. <laughs> well, thanks so much again for coming on. We really appreciate it. We'll put all your social media links in the show notes so people can follow what you're doing at all times. And thanks again. Thank you very much, guys. Enjoy your rest of your weekend. You thanks. too. Thanks to you as well. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye.